Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Christopher, and as you may know, uh, I am one of our ministry staff uh, here at New Life. Welcome to our service this morning, and I am genuinely thrilled uh, to be bringing you a message that I've entitled, A Church for the Next Generation. Uh, my hope this morning is for us to explore a little bit about what, uh, well, firstly, what church even is. Consider perhaps how young people, how young folks find themselves as they uh, enter that church and consider a little bit about uh, what that church could look like um, perhaps in, in the years to come. So that's sort of our journey this morning and I'm really excited for you to be here with us as I, uh, I don't get to share this kind of message all that often. So um, I'm just really thrilled to sort of share some of my passion for, for young folks. So let's jump in. Before we do though, I want you to know that I absolutely hate TikTok. Okay, I don't know if you're aware of what TikTok is. I should hope that most of you are probably familiar, but it is a video sharing uh, social media platform where people will do various dances and songs and duets and sort of silly videos um, and share them and, and sort of recycle that content where someone will do a duet and then that kind of you know gets spread out and it makes people do all sorts of very fun and, and silly and um, awkward things. My little sister, who's 10 years younger than me, uh, is all over it. And uh, she stayed with us uh, quite a bit early in the pandemic and would do these TikTok videos from time to time where she'd be dancing away and doing like, you know, crazy moves and stuff, learning all these different, um, yeah, songs and dances and routines. Uh, and I would just look at it and shake my head because I simply don't understand it. It just seems awkward and weird and just so not for me. Which is weird, right? Because here I am working with youth professionally, I see this stuff and I cannot bring myself to understand it. Now, if you're anything like me, then it's not just TikTok that you might find a bit confusing, but a whole slew of things. And when you think of sort of the next generation, uh, or youth culture, or you know, whatever kind of comes to your mind there, it might seem like just a, an incredibly foreign and different thing than what you've experienced, so much so that you just can't bring yourself to do it. You just can't understand it. It's just too different. Now, I think that's completely fine and completely understandable. Uh, but today, I am going to invite us to perhaps challenge that a little bit, and uh, we'll see why in, in a moment. So keep that in mind as we press in here. I want to begin, I mean, I guess I've already begun, but I want us to start off the actual, like, I guess, teaching stuff uh, with a passage from Acts chapter 2. This passage is really a famous one in scripture, and it describes what we might call the birth of the church, right? The church's birthday, the first time that the church ever existed. Uh, it's a really beautiful story, and um, I'm going to read it, probably not in full, I'll read a few a few verses here to give us a bit of a taste of what it's like, uh, and then I'll, I'll jump into some of what we can draw out of that, okay? So this is, as I said, Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, uh, they were all together in one place. They here means uh, the disciples. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. 
and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them uh, and, and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked, saying, they're drunk. I love this passage. It goes on and you'll find that Peter will stand up now uh, filled with the Spirit and begin preaching to the multitude so gathered about the good news of Jesus. And later on, uh, that same passage will talk about how the community was just filled with generosity, selling what they had, giving to each other, and people just kept being brought into this, uh, this new community that was being formed. I would love to, to just dive in and keep chatting about all that stuff, uh, but unfortunately, we're pressed for time. So, What can we say about this passage we've just read? There's a few things that I want to highlight. Um, First of all, when it says that all the disciples are gathered together, um, implicitly what that is suggesting is that really everyone that at this time is a follower of Jesus is all gathered in this spot. Right? So the whole church right, is, is there, though you could argue they're not quite the church until that Holy Spirit comes. Um, The next thing is that this is the first time that we've seen in Scripture a community of people being anointed at once. Anointing is something that does often show up in the Old Testament, which is uh, about that that chunk of your Bible or so, right about there. So all the stuff before Jesus. Anointing um, will usually signify God's presence or sort of God's... um, a blessing in a way, his closeness with the person being anointed, and they'll often use oil to signify that. And uh, usually this would be done for kings or for prophets. Um, notably, the there's two prophets for sure that um, would have their mouths specifically anointed by God. Uh, Jeremiah had his mouth touched, and um, Isaiah, I believe, touches his mouth to a burning coal, and that allows them then to have sort of the authority to go and preach and to speak. Uh, you might recall that the king of Israel, Saul, and David were anointed by Samuel, the prophet, uh, in order to signify that God was with them. So anointing is something that happens quite a bit, but what we don't see is a whole group of people and the Spirit of God meeting them in their entirety. There is no segregation here between who receives this spirit and who does not, but it is for all of those who are gathered, all these believers in this Jesus movement thing. The next thing that I want to point out is that you could really consider this moment to be something like a new Babel. If you recall, there's a story um, early in scripture in Genesis 
known as the Tower of Babel, where all of humanity is gathered in one place and they begin to construct this monument. And God, in a miraculous way, comes down and confuses the languages of people uh, in the process creating human culture, which is kind of beautiful in its own way, and resulting in the scattering of humanity across the globe. Um, in this moment, you have something like that happening yet again. You see that um, there were dwelling in Jerusalem devout men from every nation under heaven is the language that's used, which is probably not literally every nation, but rather um, one of the points that um, our intern actually discovered when I asked her to do some research on this is that that list of places that we've just read through actually spans the full breadth of the Roman Empire. Um, which is sort of a beautiful symbol. Uh, it sort of is implying that the Roman Empire, which in those days was seen as the whole world, like that's that's the, the whole thing, that's the world. Uh, the Roman Empire is represented in terms of its full span. Uh, so once again, something like this, um, the, this gathering at Babel, where every nation of the world, every group is sort of represented or, or present in some way. And more than that, uh, language himself, God miraculously shifts the language of these persons uh, such that now the good news of God is being proclaimed in every language family. Uh, it's, a, it's a truly beautiful moment, and um, from this point, the story of Acts will begin to unfold in a way that mirrors the Great Commission, where Jesus tells his disciples to go into all the world and to preach and to teach and to baptize, and they were to go into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Acts is structured such that it mirrors that narrative, or the narrative mirrors that call. It begins in Judea or in Jerusalem and moves outward from Jerusalem into that region called Judea and then north to Samaria, which is a group of people that considered themselves Jewish but that Jews did not consider Jewish. And then uh, it concludes with Paul in Rome, which sort of uh, exemplifies the end of the earth. It's important then to, to note that this moment of what we call the, the birthday of the church, and I, I always love saying, you know, it's the church's birthday because, you know, they had candles and everything. Yes, I know it's a bad joke. Uh, but this moment in time is the first time that we see the Holy Spirit poured out on everyone indiscriminately of their, well, presumably here, their gender, as the men and the women would have been gathered together, their ethnicity, and that, yes, they may be religiously Jewish, and there's proselytes and so on, but regardless of that, they're all present, their language, and so on. Everyone is able to receive this, this blessing of unity in this little community that's beginning to form. Furthermore, that little community is not just inclusive in those who were there, but begins to scatter and to spread into all the earth. And as the narrative of the New Testament sort of unfolds, you'll find in Paul's letters that uh, he goes even further. Um, the, the church really does wrestle with this idea of can you be non-Jewish and be Christian? And that was a, a real struggle for them in their earliest years. And uh, Paul writes this beautiful image in Ephesians where he describes the, this wall of hostility that separates the Jews, which are God's chosen people, and everybody else, which they call the Gentiles, um, which is just the Latin word for nations. So the Jews and, and the nations, everyone else. And that dividing wall of hostility has been broken down because of what Jesus has done. 
And he'll go on and say elsewhere in Galatians that because of what Jesus has done, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. We are all one in Christ Jesus. So when we speak of the church, one of the best ways we can describe it is as a community of people that are filled and joined together by the power of the Holy Spirit to follow in the example of our risen Lord Jesus. We're a people formed by the Spirit, joined together, following the example of our risen Lord Jesus. There's much more that we could say about that, but that unity comes um, in, in such a beautiful form where those other things that might divide us, anything that you might think of as this is us and that's them, the whole us-them mentality has been broken down. And the church instead is a community where there is no us and them. There is only Christ. Now, that idea is something that I'd love for you to hold in your mind as we turn and reflect on one of these other distinctions that we might be tempted to, to use in our midst, which is the distinction between young, young and old. That distinction no longer has the same kind of force that it once did. But at the same time, we shouldn't just disregard them. So I'm, I'm not here suggesting that those differences no longer exist. The point is that they are no longer what defines us as a community. So in the same way, uh, let's consider some of the needs and the, the challenges that young people are facing. And um, to shift gears a little bit, a trend of late it's like a really weird way of saying that. Uh, something that I've noticed is increasingly young people are struggling to find their place in the church, to find their place in this community. They're really struggling. And there's a lot of reasons why that is and why that could be. We certainly don't have time to go into all of them. But it breaks my heart that young folks are having such a challenge finding a place to belong here. Uh, it's my sort of personal life's mission to help young people find their identity, belonging, and purpose in Jesus. So when I look around and I see that it is just so difficult for young people to imagine themselves as a, a meaningful part of the thing we call the Christian community, the church, um, it, it actually it, it grieves me quite a bit. So I thought that it might be helpful for us to try and consider what what are young folks thinking? What are they experiencing? What's kind of going on in their minds as they approach this thing called church? How is it that they find themselves as they enter that community? And I'm, I'm hoping to perhaps advocate a little bit um, uh, their perspectives and their demeanor and their attitudes uh, so that there's understanding. Um, so I hope to do this faithfully, and I hope that you can receive this in the, the intent that it's meant, which is really to, to understand and to love and, and to grow together as a community, um, so not um, as like an indictment or as, as judgment. So that, that's my hope. So let's start with uh, young adults. Uh, young adults, <laughs> I feel for you, man. Um, there is no longer a clear pattern or a clear path. It used to be that... Uh, when you were finished high school, you'd go to school, get a job, get married, buy a house, have kids, and probably in that order. 
that pattern is simply non-existent anymore. It does not exist. Um, in my own story, okay, just to give you a taste, I graduated high school, and barely at that. <laughs> That's a story for another time. I graduated high school, went to university, dropped out after one semester, worked full-time and volunteered. In that time, moved out of my parents' house and into my other parents' house, because of a split family. Started going to school part-time and working and volunteering. Uh, realized that, that was a really dumb pace to try and finish a degree on, so I was convinced to go to school full-time. I did that for a year. In that time, I got engaged. I dropped out of that after one year in order to take on a job here, actually, at New Life full-time, which I concluded when I was then married, at which point I moved to Toronto and went to school full-time to finish my degree, did that, went on to pursue graduate studies, dropped out of those graduate studies in order to pursue a job full-time now in my field, resumed graduate studies, had a child, then <laughs> moved here, had another child, continuing still graduate studies, and we've only just, after seven years of marriage, finally been able to begin the process of buying a home. So, that's convoluted. And since my time beginning those struggles, it's really only gotten worse. Um, increasingly, young adults are struggling with a future that's uncertain. Uh, the patterns that used to be followed no longer exist, and there's a tremendous amount of doubt. Um, they're having to go and take on enormous student loans for programs that may or may not have jobs at the end of them so that they can potentially move back in with their parents, perhaps even during that process, because they might switch programs two or three times, trying to navigate a very, very evasive job market and, and trying to settle on a field for them to study. Only to resume um, working at Starbucks or McDonald's when their degree is completed because there's just no available jobs and because of that and other factors, incapable of buying a home and settling. So it's no wonder that with all of that uncertainty, they're electing not to settle in, in long-term relationships necessarily, or, or marriage in particular, uh, or they're delaying or outright abstaining from having children. That's no, no way surprising. The, the pattern has been disrupted. The, the security simply isn't there. The certainty no longer exists for them to plan out these steps of their lives and instead are trying to navigate crisis after crisis after crisis, almost in, in perpetuity. I think that's a word. <laughs> So you can understand how commitment to a local church is incredibly difficult when there's that much up in the air, that much moving and maneuvering, that much uncertainty. You can understand that there's doubt that that structure even cares about these needs because most of the folks in positions of influence and authority simply can't relate, right? Um, now, how about youth then? Youth have all of those same young adult struggles to look forward to, uh, but they have the added difference that they have grown up with smartphones. And uh, smartphones, I'm sure you probably have opinions on. Uh, I certainly do. I think that in some ways they're just this evil, evil, awful thing with so much destructive impact. And I have good reasons for believing that. Um, there's good data to suggest that, that we should have certain uh, safety precautions when using them. But that isn't the point of this chat. 
the point is that young folks, high school students and below, are growing up in a world that is so hyper-connected, right, largely because of social media, smartphones, internet access, that kind of thing, um, that their entire way of thinking about the world, I mean, it differs radically from every generation before. Even my own generation, uh, as a millennial, um, I can see the value of the internet, I know how to use it, um, but I wouldn't suggest that it's kind of the be-all and end-all of existence. Um, I can see it as a tool in a way. I can still sort of imagine it in that realm. Oh, it's something I use to do a certain task or job. That's not the case with the, the what we call Gen Z and, and the generations after them. Um, if you grew up with a smartphone, you have a sense of connection that means probably you're hyper-aware. So two things that I really want to focus on here. Um, firstly, mercy. Mercy and compassion. Uh, Youth-aged folks are growing up with, I mean, so much awareness of the pain and the heartache and the misery of people in, you know, who are weak, who are powerless, who are, who are being oppressed. And there is an enormous heart that they have for persons in that situation. So they probably have the most innate sense of mercy out of any generation that has ever existed. I, I believe that wholeheartedly. At the same time, the second thing is suspicion or doubt. That same hyperconnectivity to the needs of people also makes them incredibly suspicious and wary of the power structures and the, the persons that continue to create situations where people are marginalized and depressed. Right? So think here like mega corporations like Amazon where their workers are abused and, and how much um, money that company has or uh, you know, fossil magnates that are continuing to pollute places. Like just recently, the Gulf of Mexico was literally on fire. Um, that kind of just grotesque overabundance, excess of, of wealth and of greed is something that this generation is, has grown up with. And it's difficult for them to imagine a world that isn't characterized by incredible compassion and suspicion even bordering on, on animosity, like hatred almost, for structures and systems that oppress people for personal gain. And that, that narrative is one that is spun not by some crazy news media outlet or some faulty school system. It's really just the connectivity of the world. When you're exposed to that much pain and heartbreak, how do you not right, either become so jaded you don't care about anybody or paralyzed with grief because of systems that are, in, you, you, you just can't overcome them. They're just there. There's just greedy people oppressing the masses, right? That's the way that, that the narrative might, might play out in somebody that's sort of high school aged or younger, right? Even, even some people my own age perhaps might, might uh, subscribe to that sort of thinking. And whether you agree with that or not isn't so much the point, um, particularly social media use or smartphones in general. Uh, I would argue to you that the smartphone, I, I keep holding it, here's my mind smartphone. Uh, the smartphone is an invention much like the car, um, the automatic vehicle. Whether you like it or not, or, or, or what is kind of irrelevant, it has simply shifted the way that our society functions at a at fundamental level. And it's impossible to go back. You might have really good reasons to 
you know, persuasive ones even as to why you know keeping a horse is so much better because you have the connection to the animal and you know the responsibility factor and it's better for the environment and so on you could have genuine good arguments why a horse and buggy is better to a car it's just not going to be persuasive there's no going back and the smartphone is much the same way um, now we've yet to discover all of the things that need to happen to do that safely in much the same way that vehicles took years for airbags and seatbelts. So we can expect that there's still going to be adjustments along the way that we're trying to navigate, but that doesn't detract from the point that young folks have these things, they're grown up with these things, they know how to understand that culture better than us, they know how to use the devices better than us, they're better equipped to lead us in figuring out what that means than, than we are, who simply can't understand that. Put it this way, young folks don't have a distinction between the digital world and the real world. That distinction simply doesn't exist. Rather, for them, where the digital and the physical world intersect, that is the real world. And if you were to ask somebody to throw away their, their phone or their online presence, right, to go somewhere without Wi-Fi, say, that would be like asking someone to just willingly strand themselves at sea. I know that might sound comical, like you might be sitting there like, oh, come on, strand yourself at sea, really? I know it sounds extreme, but, but hear me out. Like that's the kind of isolation that you're essentially suggesting. For, for a young person to be disconnected from an online presence is not unlike somebody being completely cut off from civilization itself. I know that sounds extreme, but that's just the way that, that they approach it. That's the way that young folks conceive of the world. Rightly or wrongly, that's their perspective, and the hope for us is that we can try our best to understand it enough uh, that we don't put our foot in our mouth by saying, well, just get off the dang devices. That might be true. That might even have value. But the way you approach that conversation is really going to matter, right? Hey, consider trying this is very different than just discarding an entire worldview, an entire perspective of thinking of the world. So... Let's then press in. I know that that might sound really bleak and really upsetting, um, which actually I'm, I suppose I'm about to make it worse because when we think then of young people entering this thing we call the church, our hope would be that it's a space they can find their identity, belonging, and purpose, where, where their concerns can be heard and met, listened to, acted upon, and where change can occur. But unfortunately, a lot of young folks look at Christians and these, these churchgoers as people who are deeply hypocritical and judgmental and who are unwilling to consider the needs of the poor and the marginalized, who are unwilling to, to challenge their own behavior and activities and wealth. And, and that means that when they enter a space like ours even, um, there's a lot of doubt and suspicion. Essentially, it plays out like this is just another power structure that is oppressing the masses and discarding the needs of the needy. That might not be a very charitable way of looking at things, and I would challenge young folks, if that's how you think, there's a whole lot more um, to the story than, than perhaps that narrative. But at the same time, we as believers need to accept that if that's how people view us, if that's how young folks especially imagine this thing we call the church, this community that's supposed to be this life-giving, beautiful expression of God's love for humanity, if that is seen as oppressive and judgmental and, and crass and selfish and greedy and so on, 
we've got a lot of hard thinking to do then about how we center ourselves around Jesus and how we live out his example in the world around us. So forgive the bleakness of that and let's shift gears and try and imagine then what a community of, well, what a Christian community looks like, what a church for the next generation could be. You might have heard that young people are, are really leaving the church or, or abandoning uh, church and that is kind of true. Uh, like I mentioned before, young people are increasingly struggling to find their place in the church. The good news here is that they have not rejected the gospel. If we understand that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is something like that God, because of his love for humanity, has provided a way for everyone to be united with him in this community formed by the Holy Spirit and pulled forward to enact love and good works in the name of our risen Lord Jesus, so much so that this kingdom of God that Jesus is now the head of can begin to form itself in this world even now, that, that these glimpses of eternity can begin to take root and actually be known and experienced now, not just when we die, Right? That, that this same community that's bound by the Spirit and empowered to preach and to, to, to lead people into this relationship with Jesus, to follow in that example, that that community can combat the powers and the, the structures of darkness and that evil cannot stand against it and that the world looks a little bit more like heaven now than it did before interactions with that people. If we can see the good news in that, that, that life and joy and peace abundantly are provided for those who come into faith with Christ and live and enact that life in community together, that good news story is not something that young people have rejected. They hear that story. They hear that the, the power of the good news to shift lives, to break bondage, to deliver the captive, to help the orphan, and so on. That is a story that they listen to and they go, that I could get, I could get behind. So they've not rejected the good news. And that, my friends, is really good news for us. Because all of these structures and systems and programs and, and the like that we've added to church, right? Because church is just the people, remember, not the building or the structures. This community that has these things, um, we can understand that those things are not the message. They're not the good news. They're just a means to sort of spread that good news around. That's the hope, at least. That's the point, right? We have buildings and structures and systems and denominations and so on as a way of organizing ourselves so that this gospel community can live in this world such that people come to faith in Christ. So because those structures are not the good news themselves, it means that they can change, they can shift, and we don't in any way have to alter our message because the message is already the best news the world could possibly hope for anyway. And I would say that's good news because that way we don't have to tie ourselves to uh, cultural things or structural things that are limiting our ability to witness to the gospel. And instead, we can focus on living out that good news as a people bound by the Spirit following Christ's example. 
I think that that's a tremendously hopeful thing. So when I when I imagine a church of the next generation, really, in an almost too simple sort of way, I just imagine a community that takes the gospel so to heart, takes it so seriously, that loves and lives out this good news of the kingdom of God enabled now in our midst, thanks to Jesus. And I think that there's a, a lot of, I guess, a lot of ways that that could take shape. Um, I love the idea of a community that is so blind to age that no matter what stage of life a person is in, meaningful friendship is sort of felt between the different experiences. I love to imagine a community where the oldest in our midst are able to share their experience and their wisdom um, with a, a group of people that are so young and so vibrant and so excited to try stuff and fail that they can endeavor to enact that wisdom in a way that perhaps those older generations can't. I love imagining a world where the most stable and secure and established in our midst are sacrificially giving their time and their attention and their efforts and their finances so that young people don't have to scrape and struggle to navigate the challenges that they're faced with. I love a world where every child, no matter how old, has someone's eyes light up when they enter the room and where in our lobby, our, our people are, are kneeling down to talk eye to eye with kids and understand how their week was and, and which episode of Paw Patrol they happened to see. <laughs> I love being able to imagine this family of new life really disregarding our own biological family connections in such a way that every one of us sees each other as true brothers and sisters, no matter of our race or social status. And that those dividing walls of hostility really are rendered as rubble between us. I, I love thinking of you know New Life's place as being the church where everybody is truly welcomed. And when it comes to you know the next generation and, and their specific concerns, I love you know encouraging them understanding how their, um, like what their concerns might be, giving them a space for those concerns to be heard, allowing them to lead us in their, in their desires for what church could be, and having their opinions really set the agenda for what we talk about, how we live, the, the priorities of our community, that they line up with the things that our young people are saying, like, this needs attention. I love the opportunities that that could provide for us to be a, a kingdom witness to Collingwood and the surrounding area. And I, I love being able to consider what the structures might change to be, what the, what the worship of our service could form into, what the, the opinion of the Collingwood and surrounding community might be when our young people are saying, no, like, we got to do this, this, and this, and we respond graciously and responsively. And all of that, I think, is a tremendously hopeful thing. Because none of it has to have us change much more than taking the gospel super seriously, which is something I think all of us want to do already anyway. So I suppose um, one of the, the greatest ways that we could think of, of all of this is that our, you know, the next generation isn't the next generation uh, of the church, but they're the church now already. And if they are a meaningful and necessary part of us already, 
then that means that we can really allow for their voices and their efforts and their energies and their priorities and their opinions uh, to have a really valuable place among us. So my encouragement um, to all of you, so whatever it is, when you think of next generation, you've got in your mind already, to, to many of you, I might be next generation, right? And for me, it's, it's young adults and, and under. Uh, but I would invite you to consider that no matter where you are in your walk of life, you have experiences and lessons that you can pass on to somebody that's a few years beneath you. So consider, even now, somebody that's maybe five to seven years younger than you are. What's something that you wish you knew then that you know now? Tell that person that thing. And maybe you don't know them all that well, right? You think of people who are, are here kind of in our midst, and you're like, oh, I don't really know all that many young people. Guess what? Young people love for you to know them. Turns out, turns out people like talking about themselves. <laughs> Go figure. So I'd invite you to consider Who's somebody with really young kids in this in this community? Maybe invite them over to your backyard and, and have a barbecue and get to know them a bit, right? If you don't have grandchildren of your own, adopt some of, of those in our midst. I mean, I've got a couple kids. If you want to take them off my hands, I would be more than grateful. <laughs> I'm joking, but you get my meaning. Let's rally around this idea of next-gen stuff so much that it's just second nature. Let's prioritize the opinions and the concerns and the needs of those who are already considering the needs of the most needy. And let's allow their voices to shape the trajectory of this community. Let's create a culture where the youngest in our midst is honored the same as the oldest, and where those social and generational distinctions really pale in comparison to the unity that we have by the Spirit of Christ and as we follow his example. And in all of that, I think that we'll find that there's a tremendous amount of joy learning from one another between these different generations. And who knows, maybe we'll even find the courage to make a TikTok. <laughs> so, uh, allow me to conclude this morning uh, praying uh, just for some of that unity and that, uh, that love to really fill us in our midst. Would you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, thank you so much for the unity and community that's already present in your own uh, Trinity nature. It's a mystery to us, and we marvel at the love and the, uh, the humility that you display in, in Christ, who is our Lord, and yet God, and fully man, and yet came to this earth and died as a servant and rose again victorious by the power of that spirit. So in all of that mystery, Lord, we pray and we, we ask, plead for some of that communal uh, unity to fill us as we follow the example of Christ. We pray that this might be a place much like that first church in Acts where the Holy Spirit fills each of us so much that Every tribe and tongue, so to speak, every nation under heaven can gather and hear that good news of Jesus proclaimed. And we pray, Lord, that you might, between us, divide, um, or sorry, destroy that dividing wall of hostility so much that we're able to appreciate one another for who we are in Christ together. And that, Lord, we might be able to see and appreciate the concerns and the needs of the least in our community, be them the youngest 
or the oldest, the poorest or the richest. Allow us, Lord, eyes to, to, to see truly uh, those who are in need of that, that gentle word, that encouragement, uh, that blessing. Uh, fill us, Lord, with love for one another. Bind us together in unity by your Spirit and pull us forward from this morning out into this world so that we can consider the needs of the least in our midst and model that kingdom living that you've asked us to. May your kingdom come, Lord, here on this earth now, even as it's already established in the heavens, and give us strength to see it through. We love you and we bless you and we thank you so much for all you are and all that you do. In the name of our risen Lord, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us and for listening to some of my thoughts on uh, a church for the next generation. If you want to talk more, I'm always open. But for now, uh, I'd like to bless you. So may the love of God the Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit rest and abide with you now and always. Go in peace. Thanks for joining.